Hello to you. My name is Tess Armstrong and I'm here to remind you of some of the great chats we've already had this year. I am recording this on the beautiful lands of the Wadarong people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of this land and pay my respects to elders past and present. And I'd like to extend that to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening right around the country. As we farewell AFLW season 2022 part one and get stuck into the AFLM, it was excellent to wrap up the women's season with Brisbane coach Craig Starsevich and Fremantle coach Trent Cooper. Kate talked to them about all sorts of things, big picture things like expansion and their season wrap up and all that sorts of things. But most importantly, she dug straight in on the biggest issue of the year, Stars' Shuey at the W Awards. Talk us through the shoey and why you did it. Is it a Brisbane Lions tradition? <laughs> <laughs> it is. As, as Coops will well know, once the girls sort of dare you to do something, it's pretty hard to back out of. So uh, there was a discussion before the event about should Batesy get across the line, you know, what are we going to do? And they all had different ideas. And then I got sort of stared down by Jade Allinger at one point and said, you're doing a shoey. I said, what's a, what's a shoey? Um, and away they went and said, okay, well, let's hope Batesy gets there. And if she does, we won't really care what we're doing, so we'll, we'll stick to it. I have to ask, having never done a shoey myself, is it disgustingly sweaty and gross and does it taste like your, what, what your own foot must taste like? <laughs> uh, there's a few flavours, Kate, that, <laughs> that come to mind. Truth be told, half of it ended up on the floor under the table, so uh, apologies to the staff at Crown for the clean-up <laughs> afterwards. Well, look, it's not, it's not very appetising to me, it doesn't sound very tasty but well done Craig good on you for doing it um you must have been thrilled to see Emily Bates take away the W award what does it mean to you as a coach to coach an individual who wins an award like that well Cooks has had experience um, last year with Turbo obviously but it's a, it's a buzz no doubt about that it's great for your footy team it's great for your footy club to get that level of recognition and particularly Emily who um, I've known well beyond the six years of the competition and um, seen her go from being one of the most talented under 18 kids in the country to you know cementing herself right at the top of the AFLW so to see that progression through her career and through her life has been you know we're all really proud we're, we're like parents do I guess but it's it's been amazing to see um to see her progression. Trent, uh, Craig mentioned there, you feel like a proud parent. Talking about feeling like a proud parent, you must have too uh, earlier in the week when Hayley Miller was named in the All-Australian squad and she was the vice-captain. Tell us about the impact she's had on the club this year and also whether you did a shoey or something else in the in the inner sanctum of the Dockers <laughs> to celebrate that win. No, I didn't, but they've. I got a text from Gabby O'Sullivan about three minutes later after uh, Stars did his saying, We've got motivation to win an individual award next year now. I said, oh, well, we'll have to come up with something different. That's been done now. Yeah, but Haley's efforts, she's just – she's been on an improvement cycle you know, since I've been there, well, before that as well. But this year, she worked really hard in the off-season. People have put it down to the captaincy, but she'd actually already made the improvements and the sacrifices to have a really good year before that. Yeah, she's been phenomenal on-field and her off-field leadership as well has been uh, been outstanding. And it was great that she was recognised by her peers when she finished second to Daisy Pearce in the AFLPA Captain of the Year, which um, you know, sometimes 
being a long way away, that doesn't get noticed. But it was really good that her peers did notice that because her leadership this year in trying circumstances you know, for, for big parts has been been phenomenal. Have you both had an opportunity to look back on the season yet and, and to reflect on it? And do you have any key takeaways? Craig, I might go, go to you first. Uh, yeah, Kate, like our, our win lost this year, nine and three. Last year, we were nine and two and won the flag. This year, we're nine and three, not even playing in the grand finals. So that bit's hard to stomach and in some ways, but it is um, a bit of a nod to the ever-growing competition. We're, we're playing more games of footy, albeit just the one, but we are playing more games of footy. It is harder to finish up the top end. We are now playing genuine final series, so you've actually got to be good in those three weeks to, um, you know, to take home the ultimate prize. So it feels more like footy now. It, it feels like a footy season. You've, you've got your qualifying period and then you've got your post-season to steal a, a US phrase, but uh, you've got to be good then. And Coops and I were talking the other night about this, weren't we, Trent, about the, there's not much between the top six teams right now in the comp. And it was the same last year. The top, the top six are separated by a hair. I'm immensely proud of our group and we've actually improved, I reckon, so... We're playing better footy, one out of nine games, but we're not playing in the in the decider, which is which is hard to stomach. Yeah, we reflect on it really positively. Um, after we had a, obviously a great 2020 season, we we're really disappointed with our 2021, particularly the way it finished. And it wasn't just the final; it sort of petered out. So we've had to change quite a few things. We've actually got now one of the younger lists in the comp as well. So we were wrapped with what we managed to achieve this year and got a lot of games into our young players and a few of them maybe didn't stand up um, in the finals but they will be all the better for that experience so hopefully when we get there next year they'll have that under their belt but we talked about we, we faced a lot of challenges during the year um, but they were challenges at the time but in the end we've come out stronger for that and a better team and to be away for so long and for Dana East and Michaela Tarkarena and Amy Franklin to live with Kiara Bowers and Hayley Miller and Cara Antonio and see how they they act and behave and prepare themselves, it's going to stand them in good stead for you know, hopefully 10, 12 years careers. And you can't buy that experience. It was lucky enough that it was forced on us and it wasn't great at the time, but we look at that as a, as a huge advantage now having been through that. You talked about expansion, Trent, and I actually wanted to ask you both about this. Craig, I know you've been pretty vocal about it in the last couple of weeks, but also last year you spoke up about it too and the impact that expansions had on Brisbane in particular where new clubs can come in and poach your players and there's a big risk of that now of course with the final four teams to come in how confident are you both that you can keep the squad that you've got together largely together and and is there anything that you can do to keep those women at Brisbane and at Frio oh, okay. it must have dropped out that question about expansion I didn't hear any of that at all so oh geez um how many you lost seven to West Coast, I reckon. Uh, nine, nine. We lost nine. Nine in there. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We we, we ended up le- losing eleven three years ago. So there's no hiding it. It bloody hurts at the time. You've built this team up uh, together, and you've formed some relationships, and you're getting some progress with the young ones, and and so on and so forth. But you know, then they get up and walk. So that that's always difficult. However. There's opportunity for others, and both clubs have done pretty well since. We've been able to bounce back okay. I'm feeling the same feelings I did three years ago now. It's just the the apprehension and the, you know, is our culture good enough? Is everything ticked off? What are the other clubs trying to sell that that they think you don't have and they do have? We've been going for six years now. We've, We've made plenty of mistakes 
We know what works and doesn't work, but we still haven't nailed everything, but we've covered off most things now. And it's going to be interesting to see who, who decides that the, the grass is greener. It's still a, a, a fair feeling of apprehension. What's it like for you, Trent? We're hopeful that we're... The, the tyranny of distance can actually help us in this situation because it hasn't helped us when we've been trying to attract players to come you know, across the country. It hasn't been easy and we're hoping it's sort of similar the other way. We hope that that you know, we've created an environment that players want to stay and they play good football and, and have fun as well. If there's players that need further opportunity because they you know might be on the list not getting a game, we can understand that. But we'd hope that the players that are playing each week, you know, we're in a in a spot where we should be challenging for a few years uh, ahead as well. And you know, for those players to play alongside you know, Kiara Bowers and Ebony Antonio for as long as they can as well, we hope that's going to be the, the selling point in keeping our people here because we know that they could earn more money if they move. That's just going to be a given. Um, but we hope that what we do offer offsets that and that uh, we manage to keep the majority of the squad for I was going to say next year, next season, because it's not next year. Just give the Premier a call, Coops, and tell him to shut the ball <laughs> in those two weeks. That's one thing he's willing to do. Sure. I think. <laughs> Does this mean that you're spending this postseason reaching out to the players and having conversations with them and seeing where they're at and trying to encourage them to, to stay on board and stick it out? Yeah, definitely. We, uh, we'll do our exit interviews and, yeah, we'll be having those conversations you know, at that point with the players and um, normally there's whispers around we haven't heard anything at this stage so hopefully that is the case but yeah we'll be doing our best to make sure everyone's happy comfortable and going forward and but though if they're genuinely not happy with us then um, let's see what can be done to help them and to leave us in a reasonable spot as well but at the moment we think we've got a group who's pretty committed going forward. Well we're, we're a little bit the same we're um, obviously we're closer to the action I guess in terms of moving but there's still going to be an interstate move involved if they're if they're contemplating doing it but as Coop said we're, we're doing exactly the same right now we're going through our exit interviews uh, starting this afternoon actually you get a bit of an idea there if if a player is looking for opportunity we would like to help them and work something out with another club that they get an opportunity to play so that that part of it you know we can help facilitate a bit um, but for the ones the, the ones that are, are, are regulars in our group and have got a lot of footy ahead of them, we're hoping it's going to be with the Brisbane Lions. It's an interesting time. It's the last time that players will get the opportunity to go go and chase a new club and, and set themselves up on a higher tier. So I know last time we had 11 players leave and it, none of it was for uh, the same tier. It, it, it was it was always, uh, there were always enticements and there were always job opportunities and those sorts of things. So uh, some of that stuff as an established club you can't compete with because you've already filled up those positions. So, yeah, it's just the, the lay of the land as it is now, but we're hoping that our culture and, you know, strong group and winning culture is something that will be uh, good enough to keep most. Great insights there from two of the great coaches and friends of the pod, Craig Starcevich and Trent Cooper, who will be getting themselves set for the next season of AFLW whenever it does officially begin. Trent mentioned All-Australian Vice-Captain Hayley Miller there. What an outstanding season that she had. Lucy and I were very lucky. We caught up with Hayley when she returned to WA from their stint on the road and we talked to her about all sorts of things, captaincy, her excellent form, leaving behind her job for footy and her hopes for the future of the competition. It's great to see you in this role as captain. We love watching your football. We've watched you since the first season, but I think there's been some talk about you changed your approach a little bit with fitness. Um, how's it all going for you? 
Yeah, I think I just worked really hard in the in the off season. I was probably disappointed with my season last season. Like it wasn't it wasn't bad, and and the season before that wasn't it was never bad, but it just wasn't at the expectation that that I hold myself to. So mm. in I watched I've got Turbo there um, as a as a role model. I watched what she does, and you know half the reason why she is as good as she is is because she I don't actually think she ever gets tired. She never looks tired. She's just that fit that she can get to every contest and, and impact it because she's fitter than everyone else. So I yeah took a leaf out of her book and trained really hard to improve my fitness, improve my 2K um, time, all that kind of thing. And then the other stuff sort of falls into place a little bit. A lot of people have said, oh, you became captain and then you got better. But I think regardless of, of that, I get it gives you an extra responsibility and maybe a little bit more of, you know, I've got to perform here to, mm. to help everyone else. But I would have like to think that it, it would have happened anyway um, with the work that I put in in the, in the off season. That doesn't happen for everyone. I mean, often people are made captain and their form does suffer because they're concentrating on all of the other things that you have to do on the field. So I think that you are exceptional and it's quite extraordinary to be able to take your game next level at the same time as taking your leadership there as well. Do you have a leadership philosophy? I, I'm really lucky that I've got a really strong group around me that, that support me really well. So my leadership group, as well as the club itself and we have a leadership consultant who who works with me quite closely I've got Cara Antonio who's still around and and helps me a lot to bounce ideas off she's she's done this before and that certainly helps with taking the load off in terms of what what kind of leader I want to be my thing's always been leading by example and I think yeah if I can't do that on the field that my leadership style is not not working too well so I guess my performance helps the the leader that I want to be at the moment and leading by example and um, uh, a lot of people said to me, you know, don't change too much because you were voted in because of what you've done mm. up to this point. So um, I've tried to keep it pretty consistent and and not try and be the hero all the time and just, you know, you just go about my business and, and bring girls along with me. What's it like captaining your former captain? <laughs> Is that awkward? <laughs> no, nah, it's not. It's definitely not awkward. It's really nice to have her there. I often find myself, you know, when I'm giving pre-game speeches or whatnot, my eyes will will dart to, to hers and she just gives me the, the nod and I'm like, yep, good. I'm saying the right thing. We're okay. Chatty's on my side. We're all good. So I definitely, yeah, do lean on her a bit and I'd rather have her there than, than not. I don't know what that feels like for her. I know it, it'd be really weird her not taking the lead on on things yeah she's she's been incredible to help help me and she's been super busy with work and and whatnot so um it's been nice for her to to have that little bit less load in terms of leadership you know we're just celebrating five years of the aflw when you think back because you've been there from the start you were the first draft pick for the Fremantle football club what have you seen change a lot has changed in that time, both at Frio with the whole AFLW, um, you know, skill level, all that kind of thing. But, you know, from from the first year to now, we have pretty much a whole new coaching staff. I think even just the facilities when we first started, we were still at Fremantle Oval. They had the absolute bare minimum there. I think we we shared one toilet. We got changed in the in the lecture theatre for a little while there because they just didn't have the facilities for us. We moved to Coburn pretty quickly, so that was probably only the first pre-season there, but we moved to Coburn and obviously we've got some state-of-the-art facilities there now. And I guess just the general feel around the club is that we're, it is one um, and we are just as much part of the club as, as the boys. And it's incredible, like um, when I became 
captain and I had my first press conference down in the lecture theatre. Um, they sent out an email to all the staff and said, like, if you want to come and watch it, you can. And and there were so many of just, you know, finance and, you know, media team, like all of that. They all just came, the event scene, they just came to to watch it and, and support me, which yeah, it was incredible for me to, to see that and feel that. But it's just such a nice feel around the club. Lucy and I often talk about how we've got a 10-year plan and we think that's great, but the 10-year plan could start tomorrow, in my opinion, and it would be awesome. So what would you like to see happen? I guess like the the main one for everyone is becoming at least more full-time or or whatnot, but we've and we started having conversations about that. For someone like me who I may just squeeze in if I play, you know, until I'm into Mm. my 30s, um, maybe, but you know, for me, it, it's not something that is going to be long-term for me. So there's, it's a real hard time because you've got half the group that will be able to, you know, they'll be at towards the end of their career, but they will, you know, get a few years full-time. Um, and then there's the other half that, you know, it's just not going to happen for them. So the, the natural progression is to to make it full-time some point in the near future. But working through that, I guess, is is difficult. I don't know if you can really... You fix the playing in the heat, you know, the hottest part of the year at the moment. I think that, again, comes with with the full time and moving it to fit in with the boys. But even then, there's so much with broadcast and fitting mm. all of all of those games in. They barely fit in all the men's ones as it is. So then to fit in a whole nother fixture of women's games to the broadcast, and we don't want to lose the broadcast for full time. That's my opinion. I wouldn't want to lose the broadcast. The broadcast is is really important to grow our game and for people to see it. If you can't see it, it's not it's not going to grow. It'll just sort of fizzle out. So there's so many different factors that that work into it. But I think yeah, the number one working towards that full time and and making it viable for girls to put their careers or whatnot on hold and you know get paid enough that they're not losing out by playing AFLW. You're a physio, Haley. How are you balancing your work with this yeah I'm actually not working at the moment so that that works well for me I um finished up at a job late last year and and haven't picked up another one it's been really good for me to be honest um it was hard at the time because it it was more so it wasn't that I wanted to leave the job it was more that the whole uncertainty around football wasn't going to work for the business and so we kind of came to an agreement that okay we'll we'll finish it there so that was really hard because essentially I lost my job and and that stability but in hindsight I think not long after that I think it was a couple of weeks I then became captain and then that's filled my time with plenty of different different things so um it's probably been a blessing in disguise I guess and then after the season I'll I'll yeah pick something back up and whether that's part-time or full-time I don't I don't even know I've kind of just parked that at the moment so it's been awesome not not working and I haven't had that stress of trying to work whilst being away. Not that I really could have anyway, but I was I was sort of basically managing the clinic that I was at before and I just wouldn't have been able to do that um, remotely. Freo captain Hayley Miller there, whose season went from strength to strength and we can't wait to see her back in action. And speaking of the action, there's always one man seemingly in the middle of it all, taking the perfect snap of the moment. That's the AFL's chief photographer, Michael Wilson. After taking another remarkable shot of Buddy Franklin surrounded by the SCG crowd after kicking his 1,000th 1,000th, hard word to say, goal, Michael posted the photo with a message about what an honour it was to be there despite the anxiety involved. And Lucy Race wanted to dig a little deeper about that. 
And you mentioned feeling anxious. You mentioned that in your post on Instagram as well. Is that about the crowd or is it about just the pressure of having, you know, knowing that you're there to capture something so important? Yeah, there's a few elements to the anxiety. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure to get some really great shots at such a momentous occasion. A lot of it's probably pressure I put on myself to get the the best shot possible. But you know, uh, shots of such a significant significant occasion. There's commercial aspects from an AFL level with those pictures. There's pressure of just not knowing how it was going to unfold. What happens if you know he was on the other side of the the ground to where I was? What happens if the kick itself was just a little hand pass over the top into the goal square and there's there's no you know no picture in in that little kick? What if I fell over? What if the camera um, somehow malfunctioned or if I had a corrupt card? There's just so many doomsday scenarios that (laughs) can go through your head as a photographer. And I guess that's where the anxiety comes from. But all's well that ends well. All you can do is just be as prepared as possible, you know, have a plan of attack uh, for a a number of scenarios. And and I guess I had all that in in the back of my mind. Fortunately, like I said, I... um, he marked it right in front of me. Uh, the kick happened, you know, probably 20 metres away from where I was and, and as soon as he marked it and, and went in for the kick, I, I just knew what I had to do, just get the kick and get out there as soon as I could and just hope for the best. Your images and the images of sports photography is just such a, an important part of storytelling around sport. And one thing, you know, about your photography is that you always seem to have your finger on the pulse of, of course, this was a moment that everybody knew what the story of the week was and what we were hoping it would be, but you always seem to capture whatever seems to be the theme or the drama of the week. And I'm wondering, does that come from being a sports fan or is it part of a brief or... How do you stay across all of that? At the end of the day, like I love football. I love the stories that football tells. I love the characters the game has. And when you're shooting a match especially, you kind of get a feel for for any stories that might be developing. You, You might have some knowledge before a game as to something that might happen or a lot of it's instinct as well, I think. Being able to, you know, read body language and, and little things like that contribute to the way that I'm, I'm able to document the game. I would say, yeah, a lot of it is just something natural within me that, that just has the ability to capture the game in a, in a way that resonates with people from a, a creative level, but also just from a photographic level. To me, photography is just still the the strongest storytelling medium that we have. And if my pictures of, of a football match can resonate with people and tell stories, then, you know, that makes me really proud. And, of course, we couldn't let Michael go without asking him about his iconic shot of Taylor Harris and what that photo means to him. Uh, when I look back on it now, I think the overwhelming feeling is probably pride in that image for everything it stood for. And for the the support that it, it gave Taylor at the time and just the line in the sand it drew, I, I guess, against online bullying. And yeah, for me, the overwhelming emotion I have of that image now is just pride that my name is associated with it. But also at the end of the day, I still just look at that picture and it's just a great sports photo. I think that gets lost a little bit. It's, it's such a spectacular image. You know, it's got a whole different meaning now, but at the end of the day, it, it's a just a classic sports photo of, of an elite female athlete doing what she does best. It's a sensational athletic photo, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really proud that, that I was able to to take it and just proud of everything that it stands for now. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of power in it. And I know that for a lot of people, the power that's captured in that and just the physicality of Taylor is something that means a lot. So 
Thank you for taking that. Do you are you aware when you take a photo that it's instantly? Do you ever kind of look at it and go, "Oh, that's going to be iconic," or that I've really nailed that? I think you do have a bit of a feeling. Like the buddy shot, for sure. As soon as I saw it, I, I thought, I mean, iconic is a big word for a photo, mm. um, and I think iconic images probably aren't iconic until they stand the test of time when we look back in five or ten years and and that people see that picture and realize that that was the iconic image of that moment but yeah as a photographer I think you do get a sense for when you've got something special in the camera I think especially you know for big marks and and big moments you know straight away if you've got it you know you just get affirmation in your mind once you see the back of the camera that yeah that's something pretty special news pictures are a little bit different in that you might not know at the time that that they're going to really stand for something but you know still you you probably get a little bit of an inkling when, when you're shooting it that there could be some sort of news angle to it that could have some some real ramifications down the track so instinctively i'd say most photographers know when they've got something pretty special in the camera when you think of all of all of the things that you've done is there a photo that got away yes <laughs> yeah, I've, I've spoken about this one before and i still think about it yeah jeremy howe took a massive mark queen's birthday it's probably three or four years ago now at the MCG over Tom McDonald on the MCC wing, I think it was, r- roughly there. Anyway, mm. um, I didn't get a photo of it. I had my head buried in my laptop. I was sending pictures of the big slide, the big freeze slide that was on earlier that, <laughs> that day. We had some clients that needed pictures of um, the sliders urgently. So um, I had my head in the laptop and I was sort of listening to the commentary of the match, knowing full well that I could miss something. And then just all of a sudden I just heard this massive roar it was you know one of the best marks ever and yeah sure enough looked up at the the replay on the big screen and it was a mark for the ages and I still have nightmares about uh, about missing that one <laughs> now who's to say that I might have been blocked by an umpire or a trainer or something but um, I would have liked to have given myself the opportunity to at least get a frame of it fortunately the other AFL photos photographer that was working that day got a cracking picture of it so you know we were covered and I was, I was wrapped that we were still able to get a great photo of it. But, yeah, from a selfish point of view, I, I would have loved to have got a frame of that one. It was just a fantastic mark. As a photographer, you just you want to get all the big moments, and that was certainly one from that year and that match and, and one that uh, I'll look back on and uh, wish I had have got. This is Kurt Fernley, and I love listening to The Outer Sanctum. It's hard to believe it's been more than a year since the release of Collingwood's Do Better report and the conversations around that are ongoing. Our very own Rana Hussain was on that advisory committee working with Collingwood and through her work with the club she got to know AFLM player Brodie Grundy. Here's Brodie reflecting on Heretia Lumumba's legacy and how that report and the tumultuous off-field times for the club impacted him. As a a young player, seeing um, and, and being alongside someone like H and you know, having them read the experiences and have them documented and not just Haritiers, but um, so many other people in the football community was just like really upsetting. Like, and, and just to know that when I was 18, I didn't really know what that was or how I could help. And it's just become incumbent on me as a 27 year old and white privileged man that I have a role to play. And that's why I've loved um, speaking with you, Rana, and, and just how many times I've just put my hand up and gone like, I don't know what this is, but I want to learn more about it and, and just be a better advocate for those that have experienced, whether it's racism or any form of um, discrimination and 
it was pretty crazy when that report got put out as a player as well. Like you're the public face of that report and Collingwood's such a proud club and we've got amazing people who are so proud of where we've been and what we've done and we've certainly committed wholeheartedly to those recommendations put forward by the report and you know working alongside experts in the field like it's just been so key like having people like yourself involved where players and staff and members of the community can like have access to and just learn like educate Mm. themselves and being open to that and I suppose it takes a bit of vulnerability like me even just talking about it is like can be scary because traditionally hasn't been something that people have spoken about so um Mm. here we are on the uh fifth (laughs) quarter (laughs) well it one of the things you said to me really early on and it really struck me how much anxiety and nervousness there is around these conversations as representatives of the club and really public-facing representatives of the club. I felt like that was a really challenging time when the media was so interested in it. Can you just take me through what that feeling was like around wanting to speak out more publicly but then feeling like maybe you shouldn't or you couldn't? Yeah, um, like I can feel my heart pumping now, like knowing that, you know, we're talking about something can be potentially documented you know, people can take things and, and spin it how they like, but we are just people and we're just trying to be good people and learn. And I know like for me, I'm involved with yourself and, and, and learning and trying to educate myself. And it's just like being so publicly facing, you just never want to say the wrong thing or not acknowledge another pers- uh, perspective and because it's just like the media is just crazy like what they can do to to people and but hearing myself even say that that's also why it's so important to to have those conversations because like if i won't like who will as as a as like a privileged white man that plays for collingwood if i can't be a voice and be a representative of that sort of conversation for people in minority groups, yeah, that's a bit of a shame, isn't it? It's uncomfortable for me, but wow, if I feel uncomfortable, imagine what it's actually like to be, like I've never experienced racism, having that empathy to put myself in other people's shoes, going on that journey, it's uncomfortable, it's it's scary, but it's necessary. You're one of those players I feel like has a lot of interests that are outside of footy. And it's even me saying that is a bit weird because I assume all players have interests that are outside of footy, but I feel like some some of you lean into those more than others or outwardly kind of show us what those interests are. I said up top you're studying an MBA. What else happens in the life of Brodie Grundy? I think I've, I've always been a really curious person. Like I've been someone that has always been out exploring his environment um, where, where I fit in with that and trying different things, um, staying out of trouble uh, as, as a young, young fella. But I've had also great role models. Um, when, I, when I came into the AFL, Hariti Elamumba was, was a great mo- role model for me in terms of exploring those curiosities and, and not being afraid to pursue them, albeit stereotypically the footballer you know, when I was getting drafted. Like I remember – speaking to someone and telling them when I was sort of 15, 16 that I was starting to play footy and they were like, oh, 
don't turn out to be one of those footballers. I was sort of fascinated, like what is what did that mean? Like I had no understanding of what that meant because growing up I I played basketball and I didn't really watch football or engage in it too much. So I wasn't sure what that that meant. So ever since, you know, I got drafted, I I had this thing in the back of my mind that um I always wanted to be more than just a footballer and being a footballer is a great privilege. I don't ignore that, but I've always tried to be a better version of myself and and just sort of represent the club and the you know the football community with distinction and, and and leave it in a better place and like I said when I was 18 like I had great mentors that showed me what it meant to be more than you know about kicks marks and handles and I've tried to stay true to that you know 10 years 10 years on one last conversation I wanted to remind you all of was between our very own Kate Sear and friend of the pod and discrimination law expert Liam Elphick. They were discussing the so-called Saving Women's Sport Bill. I think we can all agree we need friends like Kate and Liam so that we can turn to them and say, so what's that all about then? And thanks to the both of them for explaining it. I wonder if we can start off just in simple terms by you talking us through what the bill actually proposes. What is it that this bill would do? Yeah, well, it's, it's called the Saving Women's Sport Bill. That's what it's called. I'm not sure that I agree that that's what it does. What it does is really two things. It, it inserts a, a strictly biological definition of men and women into our Sex Discrimination Act, and that effectively, by doing so, denies all trans identities and the experiences of many people with variations of sex characteristics. And that's a definition that you don't just limit to sport, but it applies to the whole Sex Discrimination Act. That's our big federal protection for discrimination on the basis of sex, sexuality, gender identity, intersex status, pregnancy. So it's undoubtedly going to lead to unintended consequences if you drastically change how it actually defines men and women. Mm. But then flowing from that and what's gotten more media attention is it then permits the exclusion of all trans women and trans girls from all female sporting competitions. That's regardless of age, level of competitiveness or any other test or marker. So it's really giving a license to sporting organizations, clubs of every variety, amateur, professional, semi-professional, whatever it might be, to exclude and kick out trans women and girls from uh, from competing in any and all sport in Australia. Yeah, it's an extraordinary move. And we might come back to those unintended consequences later too. I, I might pick your brain a little bit more about that. I wonder in your view, if, if you can tell us, do you think this bill is necessary? And the reason I ask that question is because we already have as you say, a Sex Discrimination Act, we already have laws that govern in some senses who gets to play sport and and how people with differences of sex development or or trans or intersex athletes might play sport. So was this strictly necessary in your view? No, no, it's certainly not necessary. Um, Some people might have a view that it's necessary for different reasons, but it's not my view that it is. We actually already have exemptions in our Sex Discrimination Act that allow discrimination against trans athletes in female sporting competitions, but they do set two important restrictions on that. One is if the competitors are over the age of 12, so they have to be over the age of 12 for that discrimination to happen. And also there's a test whereby the strength, stamina or physique of competitors has to be relevant in that case. So usually that means something like lawn bowls, you probably can't discriminate against trans women because there should be no inherent advantage, I suppose, in that situation. Whereas in more competitive contact sports, perhaps that's more relevant under our under our law. I think the conversation should really be about narrowing or indeed even removing those exemptions. And what we're seeing instead in this bill is a massive expansion of those exemptions. So it's going to license exclusion and discrimination against trans women while not really doing much to protect or safeguard women's sport. There are obviously a lot of complexities going on in women's sport eligibility around the world right now. 
And I don't think we should downplay the fact that discussions are needed around that uh, and better science is needed around that. But nothing in this bill is grounded in science. Nothing in this bill is grounded on a human rights approach. It's There's nothing about it that's necessary in my view. What do you think is going to happen with the bill, given that the Prime Minister backs it? I presume, you know, there'll be a segment of the population that thinks this is a good idea. There will be some public support for it, no doubt. Is this bill going to get up politically, practically speaking? I I highly doubt it. You never say never, but I think it has very little chance of passing. One reason is that it's actually a private member's bill, even though it comes from a senator who's in the government. It's not a government bill. So the prime minister came out and I think he said the bill is terrific or, or words to that effect. Yeah. That's a public statement about it. But to my knowledge, it's it's not the case that it you know went through the usual government processes to become a bill. So that's one barrier to it. But it doesn't seem like there's much support anywhere across the political aisle for a bill of this nature. We saw recently with the religious discrimination bill that even within the government's ranks, there may be opposition to these sort of moves to exclude or discriminate against LGBTIQA plus people, including trans people, obviously. So to me, it has very little chance of passing um, in in this term of government. But I think we should also keep in mind that National sporting organisations, state and territory sporting organisations in Australia are actually far more inclusive of trans athletes than even the existing exemptions allow, never mind these massive new exemptions. There's no evidence that any of those sporting organisations want any of these exemptions or that they'd use them. It's hard to see who wants this bill, to be honest. Yes, there's a sector of society who are certainly seeking to exclude trans women from female sport, but it's hard to see beyond that which sporting organisations, which athletes, which groups are actually pushing for this. So that usually means the bill's not going to pass. Are there other things that you think we could do instead that would help save or support or promote? protect women's sport? A ton of things they could do. I think, you know, excluding trans women from sport is not not the best way to save women's sport. I would be hoping would be inclusive of women in that sporting space. But if, if Senator Chandler or the Prime Minister or the federal government more widely wanted to save women's sport, I mean, they could increase funding given to professional sporting bodies for women's sport. They could work with sporting bodies to increase access and pay for female athletes so they don't have to work full-time jobs while they're playing footy or they're playing soccer. They could you know, regulate stronger safety standards so that women aren't playing a winter sport in oppressive summer conditions, just hypothetically. Uh, You know, they could help facilitate media interests, sponsorship opportunities. You could go beyond sport. On a societal level, if they wanted to take measures to uplift women, how about reducing the gender pay gap, which last I checked was about 23%, 23%. They could commit to their promise to legislate all of the respect at work recommendations to redress and prevent sexual harassment, the many proposals by Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and others to respond to sexual abuse and sexual harassment, or what about putting energy into maybe responding to the epidemic uh, and scourge of domestic and family violence. But instead, what we've got from, from Senator Chandler and then backed up by the PM is a bill that does nothing to save women's sport and all it does is exclude one of the most marginalised groups in society. I think we need to remember that when we say marginalised, we really do mean that. One in two trans people attempt suicide. One in two, so 50%. I'd love to ask Senator Chandler what she's doing to protect trans people uh, or indeed any other interest she's ever shown in protecting women's sport because there's not a lot out there that suggests a long history of campaigning for women's sport. I don't overly remember her being part of the uh, OG Arta Sanctum team or any of the other uh, groups that were maybe working on women's sport from the outset. So I think I'd care more about what all of you think about how we can promote women's sport the best. For those that heard that fifth quarter episode when it aired, you'll understand that I couldn't possibly not play the outro that we played that day. Kate is multi-talented. Oh, she's very clever. You know, she's great on the gifts, but her true spirit comes through in her renditions of all sorts of songs. And this particular version of the Nanny theme song outlining a few ideas of how people can actually support women in sport 
might be my favourite thing that's happened this year. I'll pop a link to the full version of all these episodes in the show notes, so if you want to dive in and have a listen to them, they'll be there for you. Thank you for your ongoing support of the pod. We love you and we're back next week doing it all again. But for now, take it away, Kate, Celine Dion, Sia, and go footy. They can make sure girls and women have dressing rooms So they're not outside getting changed in the nude Get them courts and fields, get them broadcast deals And give them some money Cause over the bridge in town all the boys have more And we'd be really pissed where we keeping score Equal pay, equal say, let them play Just give the girls some money Who would have guessed that in 2022 We'd still be listing all the shit you can do Like that you should be reporting the sports we play And stop pitting sis against transgender and gay Cause at the end of the day everyone just wants to be on court That's how you support women in sport Sport